Welcome to another edition of Legends of Film. I'm William Chamberlain. Today we have an interview with director Kevin Connor. Mr. Connor has directed such movies as Motel Hell, At the Earth's Core, The Land That Time Forgot, and From Beyond the Grave. From Beyond the Grave will be shown Saturday, October 3rd, 2015 at the Downtown Public Library on 615 Church Street at 2 p.m. More later, on to the interview. Okay, I'm just going to cut to the chase and ask the first question. Director Brian Trenchard-Smith has this to say about you. Making epics on a shoestring takes a particular skill set, so I have a lot of respect for Kevin Connor, who always delivers a lot of bang for the buck. <laughs> Do you agree with this statement? Uh, well, um, being big and modest, I, I do. The, the money goes on the screen, uh, as far as I'm concerned, um, and not in uh, limousines and the rest of it. I've done um, a lot of miniseries, and the budgets are fairly um, uh, substantial. But it, it's very, it's very carefully spent. I prepare well and make sure that um, uh, it, it is run very efficiently. We never go into overtime. We never go over budget and stuff like that you know but uh, no i do i do take uh, great care of a budget it's, it's part of a director's responsibility we're showing your movie your first movie from beyond the grave which is based on our chetwin hayes short stories and you optioned the rights to these stories but what was your attraction to them uh, well that point in the in the early 70s, I'd been editing for four or five years, and it, it kind of wasn't enough for me. I wanted to uh, expand a bit into producing. So I looked around and um, found these short stories by Chetwin Hayes, and with two friends, we, uh, or I, optioned 12 of the stories. And the idea was to make a TV series of uh, these little horror genre, but they're, they're all modern-day type of um, uh, stories, so they, they shouldn't have been. It shouldn't be too expensive. And so the idea was to make a TV series. We each of us wrote um, three of the uh, four of the stories uh, and made into screenplays. Then I shopped them around and didn't get anywhere with them. Uh, the, um, the, the, the television wasn't ready for it in those days or for a horror uh, series. So, but they eventually landed on the desk of uh, Milton Subotsky of Amicus Films, who made several compilation-type movies, uh, House of Drip Blood and uh, Tales from the Crypt, I think, things like that. And anyway, he, he uh, called me in and said, uh, look, um, I'm going to take four of these stories. I'm going to put them into one of my compilation films. I'll make a, a, a link story. We'll have uh, Peter Cushing playing uh, uh, the shopkeeper, and um, you can direct it. And I said, well, I've never directed before. I mean, I'm an editor. I mean, I'm looking to produce. He said, editors make good directors because they know what is required in the cover when they've got a good performance, when they've got enough and they can move on. And, and so and you, so you're editing in your head as you shoot the film. So it's a, a very economical. And um, he, in fact, gave several editors breaks on his, his movies. Anyway, so I said, yeah, OK, why not? And he surrounded me by a great cameraman, Alan Hume, and um, operator, and sound people, and, uh, you know, uh, and composer. So, um, and a wonderful production designer. So, that's how, that's how we got started, really. It's a, by accident. 
Okay. I've read an interesting bit of trivia, and I was just wondering if it's true that R. Chetwin Hayes wrote a book called The Monster Club, and it contains references to a filmmaker called, I hope I pronounce this right, Vinicky Rohner, and that's an anagram for you, Kevin Connor. Is there any truth to that? I have no idea. That's the first I've heard of that. (laughs) Well, he was very, I mean... He was very grateful, as it were, because I um, tracked him down and got the rights, and uh, you know, got him, uh, earned him some money. And then the Monster Club, I think uh, Milton Sabotsky then picked it up. He he made it, uh, yeah, but I've, I've never, to be honest, I, I've never read uh, Monster Club. So, <laughs> but that's very flattering. Uh, but uh, well, somebody spotted that. <laughs> From Beyond the Grave was your first film as a director, and as you said, you were an editor before that. And what difficulties were there going from editing to the director's chair? Well, just uh, butterflies, really. The, I mean, I was quite confident that I could do it, and I planned it well. I plotted it out in the shots and everything. And as I say, I had really good um, technicians. You know, Alan Hume did the Bond film, uh, really superb cameraman and they were friends i mean i knew them anyway in the studio at pinewood because we were all you know we were all kind of brought up there and so they weren't strangers so it wasn't like walking onto a set and uh, didn't know anybody and um in those the early 70s the business wasn't very busy so we could get these great names you know david warner and donald pleasant for three or four days and they were very professional they they Listen to me. They, they, um, they never. I didn't get into any arguments with any anybody, and uh, they all went along with it. Um, and it was um, a very pleasant experience. I must say, I, I didn't have any. Once you know, once the first day is over and shots are in and hit the schedule and everything, then you begin to feel better about yourself and uh, that you can you can do this. You know, the technicians kind of did what you asked and um they didn't argue they uh improved some of the stuff i came up with and etc etc no it was um uh, i can't say there was any major problems at all every the actors were excellent and uh, as you can see from the cast i mean really superb actors i was i was very lucky uh, to have such a, a team and uh, actors with me okay from beyond the grave was produced by amicus productions and that include Max Rosenberg and Milton Sabotsky were in charge of the production, and you directed four movies that they produced. Could you uh, discuss the working relationship with them? Uh, well, uh, Max was the money man. He raised the money from um, various sources in, in America, AIP and uh, people like that. And Milton was more the creative guy. He found the stories and um, the directors and the casting, he you know had a big hand in the casting and uh, the storyline, as I said. So, so I really had I dealt more with Milton than I did with Max because he was a, he's a New Yorker and he came and visited and went back and forth and so on. So I didn't really see him so much. Then um, we did the the land of time forgot and uh, then I did the at the Earth's core and then I think after that Max and Milton parted company. Or they something happened within the company that made the, they weren't speaking or whatever. But 
I wasn't embroiled in that. I, I never knew what was going on. But eventually they did part company. And we then made a couple of films without uh, Milton. Um, but to working with Milton was a delight. He very, he, well, I don't think he ever came on the set, um, never looked over my shoulder, never, he saw the dailies and was supportive, never never criticised. I only had one little hustle um, with him was in the edit, the final cut of um, Beyond the Grave, when I um, wanted a sequence kept in and he wanted the sequence cut out. We had a little tussle on that, but... Um, and Max came in on that and to support Milton because of Milton's the producer. But we came to an amicable uh, arrangement. And, you know, I think, I can't remember if the sequence is in and out now. It, was, <laughs> it wasn't that important at the end of the day. You know, it's just that, you know, I shot it and I wanted it in the film type of thing. So you sort of get protective of your material. But that was the only thing that we had, and a um, little tussle. And it was, it wasn't. You know, it wasn't horrible. It was just uh, um, the pros and cons of why the scene should be or not in the film. So by and large, um, they they left me alone um, to get on with it. And my cut is more or less 95% of um, what I delivered to Milton. As I stated before, you were a director, you, you were an editor, and you made an interesting statement on the audio commentary of At the Earth's Core. You said you can learn more from a bad director than a good director, and why is that? Because the director, and, and this is not not so much in the directing of actors and so on, but in the in the, the setups and how he covers, the director would cover a scene. If you do a, a scene in one shot... That's it. You just, what they call, top and tail it, and in the film it goes. But the pace is set. You can't remove any lines out of it. You can't do anything about it because it's one shot. And several of the directors uh, I edited for did a lot of things in one shot, which is fine. But when you then put the picture together and then suddenly these one shots slow the pace down of the movie and you want to speed it up, there's nothing much you can do. So you, each scene, you have, from time to time, you have to cover it. You have to do a, a close-up here or over-shoulder shot there or whatever, just to give you the options of changing the pace or taking out lines that don't make sense or don't have any uh, contribution or you think, oh, why... why the, the director said, oh, why, why did I do that? Why is it in the film? Why did I shoot it like that? And I said, well, you're, you're stuck, mate, because it's... Um, uh, that's the way you shot it. So I learned more about what not to do than what to do, because like on Oh What Lovely War and Young Winston, Richard Attenborough was a superb director, and he had the best technicians in the world and, and best actors and everything, and it was relatively easy to edit because it was so beautifully done and so smoothly um, uh, thought out. And so I, I mean, of course I learned from good directors as well, but you, you do learn um, what not to do from bad directors when you get into the editing room and you realize that you're stuck with the sequence, that you can't change the pace of it, you can't make it move any faster or, or, or even slow it down if you need to, you know. Also on audio commentary on that particular one, you said that you got your start at Pinewood Studios, you mentioned that before, and that's where you, you said you learned your craft, and what was it like to work there at Pinewood Studios? Oh, it was, it 
it was um, it was like a big family. It was um, a family run studio at J. Arthur Rank. He was a, a from the, the North Country of England. He was a um, in the flower business and a Methodist, a very strong Methodist. And he started a uh, like a religious film company to make you know films pro Methodist uh, type of things. But he expanded into making films for uh, for the cinema and had a, a circuit called the Odeon and had this wonderful studio at Pinewood, which is an old country house with the, the studios built in the in the ground of the house. Um, he also uh, had Denham Studios, which Alexander Corder was in. They're very, they're, they're very close together, these studios, just outside. And everybody was um, permanently employed. When I went there, you know, you used to get one-year contracts and you worked on three or four films and um, it became, as I say, that's where I met my wife there and, um, and so on. So it was a it was a very, a very nice atmosphere to do those movies in those days. I, uh, when I was at school, I always wanted to get in the film industry. So I wrote to every film company in the London telephone directory that had film or photographic or something in the title. Uh, so I was like 15 or 16 or something. And um, I wrote about 120 letters, I think, in the end. I got about 25 back, and but all were negative um, because in the 50s, the film industry was in the doldrums and so on and so forth. But eventually I did get a letter from a, um, a company in London, a documentary company, where I would like to go in the editing rooms as a trainee editor. <clears throat> so I jumped to that, and that's how I got started. And then I segued into... Um, the studios got to Shepperton first for a movie, then I got to Pinewood, which uh, I'd stayed with for, for many, many years. Um, it's, a, it's a delightful studio. It's right in the, in the countryside, and uh, it's this old country house which has a restaurant in it. And really, um, uh, a, a great um, uh, place to be, you know, atmosphere to be working in. Yeah, that's that's how I basically got to underway. And you've worked with uh, Peter Cushing many times and on the Motel Hell audio commentary you stated that Peter Cushing taught you important lessons and he said you said he taught you a lot. Could you give us an example of what were some of the lessons he taught you? Uh, well, things like um not that I did and not to uh, not to raise not to um raise your voice, not to lose and he was a gentleman, so one tended to be like he his, he he was, but um, he was he always listened uh, to my suggestions. Then he would perhaps uh, have another suggestion, and then we would combine them. So it was all done very amicably. So it was all very polite, and uh, that. So I mean, I, I'd learned a lot of, of um, how to talk to actors because being an editor, you you do come in contact with um, actors when you do the ADR of a of a movie, but you you're not trained to direct actors. I mean, you, you pick it up just by instinct or by you know, watching other directors do it and so on and so forth. So Peter was very good in, um, uh, you know, dear boy, if I do this um, and I pick up the, the the object at this point, I'd like to pick it up when I say this line. You know, he, he'd give a little pointers like that, uh, how the action would integrate with the dialogue. Did little, lots of little hints that at the time you you sort of don't you don't. I mean, you understand what he's saying, but you—it all sinks in, and eventually you use it later on in, on, on other movies or the technique of how to do things. Um, he was very good at um, 
uh, explaining stuff, why he was doing something uh, as he went along. So, you know, it was sort of getting a, a second-hand uh, information from an actor uh, direct, you know, directly, as it were. Bernard Gribble, is that how you pronounce his name? Bernard, Bernard uh, Bernie Gribble, yes. Yes, Bernard. okay. Was the film editor on Motel Hell, and he edited one of my favorite movies, The Man in the White Suit, and yes, he made yeah, a he... statement he came over to America because he because of film work in England had dried up like you. And was there a huge number of British filmmakers coming to America in the late 70s, early 80s? Yes, a lot, and they're still coming and, uh, and very successful. Yes, uh, that was right. The, um, towards the end of the 70s, there was very... Um, the, the government, we had electricity failures in London, uh, three-hour working days and... Uh, um, it was really about not not good times, so, so the entertainment industry suffered, and uh, so I thought, well, now the time I've got to have a go at Hollywood. Um, everybody is like Everest, you know, you've got to have a go at it. So I came, and yes, quite a few, um, not a, actors, technicians. Um, one of my favourite cameramen, Dougie Milson, Stanley Kubrick's cameraman, he came over. My editor friend came over. Um, plus, as I say, a lot of lot of directors and. and a lot of actors, of course, having you know, having a go at uh, at Hollywood. At least you know, if you if you fail, fine. Then you you but you you've had a go. Otherwise, you know, you get back on the plane and um, you, you had a go. But I got lucky. But I got mainly shuffled into television miniseries, big miniseries. Um, not so much. It was tough to get into the feature world unless you were really really established. You mentioned on the audio commentary, I have to ask about Motel Hell because it's my boss's favorite movie or one of her favorite movies, and that there were changes from the original script on Motel Hell. How much of the original script was changed to what we have today? Uh, well, it was, it was the tone of the script, really, that was changed. Um, and, I mean, I could tell you, I don't know if I did it, told it on the audio now, when I first received the script... And it was purely by chance that I got it because I was, um, I hope I'm, not, I'm not repeating myself, um, I uh, had been here for three months in uh, Los Angeles and nothing was really happening. I didn't have any contacts, just that one, one guy who I'd left my uh, VHS with. Anyway, I went down to collect it from his office. And as I went in to collect it from his uh, assistant, the door opened and... This guy came, he was an agent, he, he came in and said, oh, Kevin, you know, how's it going? What's happening? Said, Nothing's happening. He said, come in here, I'm going to get you a job. He picked up the phone and through, in two phone calls, he landed me an interview with the, the two boys that had written uh, Motel Hell. Anyway, so I went up, I dragged this copy of uh, From Beyond the Grave up to the United Artists uh, viewing place. They liked it, gave me the script, I took the script home. You may not want to repeat this, but when I read the opening shots of the, of the script, it said, long shot, night, motel hell, the neon motel hell glows in the night, cut interior, a woman, a fat woman is in bed with a pig and a dildo. And I, I, I read this and I thought, this is, not, this is not why I've come to Hollywood to do this stuff. And I threw the script down. My wife said, uh, "I think uh, I think we should re read on, and you know, because we we need a break." Anyway, I did, and uh, there was more stuff like that, which was really childish and silly. So I went back to the boys and I said, "Look, if you take out all this 
juvenile stuff and, and make it a black comedy, tongue-in-cheek, but you, everybody plays everything straight. Don't go for this, you know, ju- teenage juvenile stuff. And that's what we did. So the tone of the the, um, the movie changed, not so much the basic plot of, uh, you know, burying people and so on and so forth, but it, and I said, I don't, I don't want to see any violence. If you watch Motel Hell, there's no, you don't, ever see any violence you, you see a, a knife go to a throat or whatever but you never actually see any incisions or the kind of stuff you see today it's just your i think people's brains minds work the imagination works better if you are imagining what's what the next step would have been had the film progressed but you cut to an, uh, uh, an opposite type of image if you think someone's uh, throat's going to be cut, you, uh, you then you cut to a, a picture of a tree and the birds are flying around, and you know you, you do opposite images. To me, that's more effective, uh, and that's what I um, hopefully convinced the uh, the two boys who were producing and, and written the script um, to do, and, and they went along with it, and that's that's what you see today, that sort of dark humour, but but played straight, you know. Before directing, you were a film editor, and like we we discussed that, and you mentioned Young Winston, and I always thought that had an interesting structure. The movie starts out in India with Winston as a cavalry officer and then flashes back to his school days. Was that in uh, Carl Foreman's script, or did you improvise that when you were in the editing room? Oh, no, that was in in Carl's script. Yeah, he was was a master craftsman uh, at writing, as as you know. No, no, that was we stuck pretty well to the script uh, all the way through. It, it doesn't usually deviate very much. It, those kind of movies, when you do a, what was the other film I cut, um, Magic Christian, that would have because that director is a different type of director. He's a comedy director, so a, a lot of stuff with Peter Sellers and Ringo is ad lib. So it's not in the script. So then you have to play around with it and integrate it and so on. But with uh, Attenborough directing at Carl Foreman, and Carl's a very strong producer, a writer. That's the way. That's 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 the way it's written. That's it's, it's not in stone, but it, that's the way uh, uh, Attenborough would um, deliver the deliver the um, the film. The, the, you know, the dailies, the rushes every day. No, no, that that was pretty spot on all the way through. Okay, and you also edited Hitler the last 10 days, and there was a mixture of black-and-white photographs and documentary footage with the um, actual movie. Uh, was this your idea to do that, or was that too scripted? Um, you know, I can't remember. It was probably scripted, you know, because to to reenact some of that stuff uh, would, be, would have been impossible, you know, like the, uh, you know, I haven't seen it in many, many years. Um you know, like the Nazis marching and um, all that kind of stuff. You you couldn't have reenacted. It would have been a major, major cost uh, to the film. And basically, it was a, uh, you know, in the bunker most of the time. Uh, we only went out of the um, bunker a couple of times, you know, to show various things. No, I'm, I'm sure they were. They, they, that was in the script. Okay. The, 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 I mean, I I probably picked the newsreel stuff, but the sense of what was required was written. Okay, um, Richard Harris, the actor, only directed one movie called The Hero, and you were the editor. And what was that collaboration like for him? That was a, a very interesting. Uh, yeah, Harris was. Uh, we shot it in Tel Aviv, in Israel, and um, 
Harris was the star, and uh, there was an Israeli director uh, who, who started, and um, Harris was at the top of his popularity. Uh, I think he'd just done um, a big mu- some musical, big musical he'd just done. Anyway. Camelot? Yeah, that's right, Camelot, yeah. He, he was a big name, anyway. Um, they, they soon fell out, and Harris is uh, Irish, and he's quite a fiery character and uh, opinionated, and he's, a, he's, you know, he's six foot three, <laughs> tough guy, you know. And anyway, he obviously didn't like the way he was being directed or the Israeli director. So he took over direction. I was uh, flown out to Tel Aviv. Um, no, I was on the picture from the beginning, but uh, the... the uh, and I saw that, you know, Harris take over. Anyway, working with Harris, well, that, that was great. He he liked me. I just finished oh, What a Lovely War. It got great reviews, and uh, um, we got on very well, and indeed, because... Um, he respected what I'd done and so on. So I often got called to the set to um, sort out uh, altercations between him and the uh, the camera operator who would argue with Harris as to where the camera should be put. And then I was brought out to adjudicate as to which was the proper place to put the camera, which was a bit nerve-wracking, of course, because, you know, you're going you're gonna to have to upset somebody. But anyway, it all worked out. And, uh, yeah, no, we, we um, went right the way through and... Um, we never had any altercations. We, we just got on fine, and uh, he's very—he's a very bright man, obviously very smart, a good actor. But he, boy, what a quite a character, I must say. I want you to finish the story on the audio commentary of the Earth Core. You were telling the story about how the financing fell through for Goliath, the weights, and the moderator interrupted or something happens. I was just wondering, could you please finish the story? What happened? Because you did eventually film it. Yes, yes. Um, I was approached by um. The writer, or the who had the original concert, no, the producer in England, a, a, a wonderful a friend of mine who I came up in the cutting rooms at Pinewood Studios, named Peter Miller, and he, incidentally, his father Harry Miller was one of the first sound editors in the film business at uh, Pinewood Studios and created and did a lot of the early David Lean films and uh, anyway, that's by the by. Anyway, Peter was going to produce this uh, mini-series, Goliath Awaits, down in Bristol in England. There was a TV studio down there, and he was an executive there, and um, he, he gave me the script. So I said, yeah, and off we went. We went uh, all over the place looking for locations. So we ended up in Greece to find this, because um, in Greece there's a lot of old liners, um, luxury liners in, in those days, the early... When was this? Nineteen early eighties, I guess. Old luxury liners, all uh, to be about to be uh, cut up and uh, you know, re whatever they do with them. And there, there's dozens of these huge things all leaning against other out in the ocean. I mean, and it's very spooky. Anyway, we clambered all over these things, picked out one of these which we could use. And as we got back on land, um, and this was nearly Christmas, eighty eighty one, Christmas eighty one probably. And um, we got the news that the uh, the British government had changed the financing or tax break laws in England to the to the financing of movies. And I, I, I can't remember what the specific law was anymore. But um, anyway, the government withdrew financing, and that's how the whole thing sort of collapsed. And then off I went. Then then I returned back to America, and. About two months later, I got a call from Columbia Television Department. Um, producer Hugh Benson said, oh, by the way, we're going to make it in America on the Queen Mary 
down in Long Beach, and we would like you to um, direct it still. Are you are you up for it? Yes, I said, that'd be great, because then I was going to do it in Hollywood. So, uh, um, so that's how it all came about, is because the British government withdrew a, a tax uh, break that was filmmakers were using at that time, as I recall. You stated that the Edgar Rice Burroughs movies you directed at the Earth's core and the land that time forgot, the people that time forgot, uh, that the effects were done in camera. And I'm cu- curious, uh, what's your opinion of um, CGI, computer-generated imagery, and modern visual effects? Well, it's it's phenomenal. I mean, it's just absolutely, you know, in the, I wish in one way that we'd had that. We just missed it, as it were, or not missed it, but what we were doing was old school, you know, with the hand puppets for the dinosaurs and things like that and models and so on no but uh, cgi and then of course along comes spielberg with his uh, uh jurassic park and of course he knocks your socks off you know i mean another three years and we would probably have been into that i think it's phenomenal i do tend to you kind of as a filmmaker you're always watching this stuff and it's like watching, looking at a, a pretty postcard. You can only look at it for so long, but it just it does open up a whole load of uh, a, a lot of um, interesting ways of making movies and what you can do now, and so on and so forth. I mean, it's still quite expensive, but it, it's going to it's going to get cheaper and cheaper uh, all the, all the time. Um, no, I mean I think it's it's wonderful. wonderful. You directed a television production of Frankenstein. Of course, Frankenstein has been done many times. And yes. what were the challenges of directing this story again? Uh, well, the challenge that this this screenplay that uh, I I got was the closest to the book that uh, I'd ever read or ever seen as a movie. I must say, uh, I did. I watched a couple of Frankenstein movies, especially the um, the Kenneth Branagh one with De Niro. And I, I, you know, I thought, oh, this is kind of weird. I think I can do better than this because it, I, I didn't like the way that that had been made. Anyway, the biggest challenge probably was getting the um, the face of the, the creature correct, you know, getting that credible and believing that that creature could operate and have a brain and feelings and so on and so forth. Uh, and we did go through quite a lot of um, uh, different makeup masks or... or um, applications to get that just the right feeling and look uh, for the creature uh, that, that was the biggest I mean the, the shooting the movie was great fun we were in Slovakia we did it uh, there uh, in Bratislava wonderful technicians there wonderful technicians who really gave me everything so wonderful cameraman uh, actors were excellent but yeah I would say the makeup of the creature was the hardest to get right you know You've done several of the Hallmark miniseries, and what's it like to work for Hallmark Entertainment? Fine. I had a great relationship with Robert Halmy Sr., and for, I think, the last 15 years, I've been working on and off on his big miniseries. I mean, he's the last of the entrepreneurs in in the television world. He never made any feature films. There were always these huge miniseries, you know, 15, $20 million, four-hour, six-hour epics. And he just left you alone. I mean, once the three or four lead actors have been cast, because it being television, you know, the TV 
NBC or whoever it was had a big say in who those actors were going to be. But after that, you cast every you cast everybody. I didn't have to um, report to anybody about who I was casting. I could have all, any of the technicians I wanted, you know, cameraman, composer. I mean, there was never any um, question of Robert insisting on this or that guy or this guy or that person once those lead actors have been put in place. So, um, no, I, my cuts were usually... Um, a few changes were made uh, at the request of the uh, the network, but Robert um, never interfered, and uh, he was the, the last of those really interesting men that, you know, came from Eastern Europe and penniless and then made it over here. You know, it, it, was, it, was, it was a delight, and I, we had a good relationship for many, many years until he passed away, sadly. Yeah, I did quite a few of those. And one of them I really enjoyed was Blackbeard, and uh, you cast Jessica Chastain before she broke out, and how did you come cast her? She was cast once we were almost underway, under, you know, started shooting. So I didn't have any hand in that at all. She, she, I got the name, and she appeared, and she was an absolute delight and, and brilliant. So I was very happy, and, uh, and then, of course, her career, she became a major, major star. Nothing to do with me, of course, but um, no, I was very lucky to have worked with her at that stage before she, you know, became really, really famous. Um, no, no, I'm afraid I had no hand in that whatsoever. It was done <laughs> from um, from here, from uh, L.A. by NBC, I guess. Uh, who did I make it? No, it was made for no, it made it for Hallmark, didn't we? Yes. Yes. Must, no, the, the casting people over here must have. Uh, you know, it was, it was a last-minute uh, sort of thing, the one part we hadn't cast, and then suddenly, boom, she was on her way. That was that was that wonderful, and she's uh, remained a good friend. This is the final question. You've been editing, directing movies and television since the 60s, and you've made this statement. Next 10 years, movies are going to change in how they're viewed and shown. In your opinion, what does the future hold? Well, I mean, I think most um, directors and actors and will say that we've had the best years in terms of the way films are, are put together and the bonhomie that goes on in the making of a movie. I mean, the sixties, seventies, and eighties into the nineties, you know, there was, it was a great spirit of uh, in filmmaking and it was great fun. And uh, but since. 2000. It's become very. Um, you know, we, we make these huge blockbusters, and a lot of the time the director is swept along by a corporate, uh, corporate who, who the corporate companies who now own uh, the, the 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 big studios and so on. So it's become there's not like a, a Sam Goldwyn or. A, a, these kind of strong men that ran these companies, it's done by committee. And it's a shame in a way because very few directors are allowed to do what they want to do. It's kind of told because there's a formula. Every story is worked out as to as what particular audience likes in a movie. So we've got to have that particular thing happen in the movie that then... But we like loud music. The, loud, the music is much louder today, and it it crashes against the dialogue. I can never. Maybe I'm getting old, right? But I, 
it's so loud I can't understand dialogue because it's swamping. You know, certain things are being brought to the forefront because of research into what an audience wants rather than what the filmmaker wants to do. I mean, obviously, the Spielbergs of this world and people like that, they have a, a big, a lot of clout and they, they do the way they want it done because uh, they are what they are, who they are, and brilliant. You know, just in general, I just feel that a lot of the power or the uh, the influence of the director has been taken away in terms of what, you, what you're going to see in, in films, especially in America. Now, the way we see it, of course, I mean... Who knows? I mean, technology moves so fast, but now you can see movies on a watch and things like that. So I guess that's all, that's, that's all going to happen as things explode and expand and over the years to come. I don't know. There's nothing quite like going to cinema and sitting in a big cinema with an audience and enjoying, enjoying a movie. And, you know, when I go to a cinema, there's usually about 10 people in the, in the movie. It's, it's really not the, the same. So... No, you, you, seeing it with an audience still is, is a better way of viewing a movie than just watching it at home, uh, just like two or three of you. You know, I've got no idea what an inside of a projection theatre looks like these days. I mean, when I was a kid, we used to have an arc and you used to strike it up and you have to do changeovers and you know, every 10 minutes and so on and so forth. But, but today... It must, be, it must be like a cassette that goes in a DVD or However, it's done. I must ask the, the DGA if I can go and see how a modern projection booth works. I mean, it's um, it's it's just like a, a small package. It's not the big uh, canisters of film that used to lug around in the old days. <clears throat> so, no, it, I mean I've been through a terrific journey of um, way back back in the the fifties when I started, and uh, with optical film, optical soundtracks, and negative and all, all those kind of things, and seeing the whole um, the way the movies have changed and the way they're made and the, the technology is just, especially in the last 15 years, is just phenomenal. I must say. Yeah, it's difficult to say how, how, what it'll be because every 18 months or so, it everything changes so quickly. But uh, uh, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a fascinating future. I'm still around, so I'm still having a go and still making movies. So. Um, we're still with it. I would like to thank Kevin Connor for doing the interview. Please come to the Downtown Public Library on 615 Church Street to see From Beyond the Grave, which will be shown on Saturday, October 3rd, 2015 at 2 p.m. Today's music is by Mike Vickers from the movie At the Earth's Core.